Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for this evening, Peter. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Peter, a compulsive overeater. Hi, Peter. Thank you for asking me to speak, and happy birthday. Um, I'm just going to bring my pictures. Forgot them. They were really great. Um, and Because uh, I, I, I run the gamut. Um, I'll give you some stats now, so it'll give you an idea as I tell my story where I've been. It puts it in context. Um, the last time I weighed myself, maybe a month ago, I'm 186 pounds. Um, my top weight was, I stopped weighing myself at 235, and my lowest weight was 144. So it's, um, and when I came to OA, uh, I had just lost a ton of weight. And I knew, and it was like the pulling on the rubber band. I knew it was all going to come back on. And um, I don't know. I just couldn't put up with that prospect. Um, I'll give you some other stats. So I'm 50. Uh, I came to my first uh, OA meeting in 1983, July 4th weekend, 1983, in Washington, D.C. And with the exception of about a six-year period of time, uh, from about mm, 99 to 2005, I've gone to meetings on a weekly basis. I've been very involved. I've about nine and a half years of abstinence. Um, before I went out in 99, I had 14 years of abstinence. So, majority of those 32 years, I've spent abstinent. And I'll talk about why I left the program for six years. Um, I come from a long line of distinguished compulsive overeaters, alcoholics, and drug addicts. Uh, everyone in my family is very big-boned, large, diabetic, um, it just, uh, you know, I did not win the genetic lottery. Um, it's, they don't live a long time. And, um, you know, it's a miracle that um, I'm abstinent. I'm, I'm a normal body weight. I'm sitting up here. Um, both of my parents, um, there's so much to tell. You know, I guess the thing is, you know, I, there were a number of years, four years I spent in college in a small, sleepy town in, in Virginia, in Charlottesville, Virginia, going to OA with the same sick people. And it was miserable. And no one had, there was one person who, who, who uh, moved there from Boston who had like a year of abstinence. And we, we could not believe it. And uh, I remember... I, I was just as I was, I'd been in program maybe a year or two coming to meetings. And so I asked her to be my sponsor because she was the only one who was abstinent. And this is when Gray Sheet was around. And so following Gray Sheet, which, you know, uh, was not realistic for someone of my, uh, for uh, an 18-year-old guy. Let's put it that way. And, um, you know, one, I, I just would not follow it. Uh, I wasn't ready. Um, and, you know, she's like, okay, let's do the inventory, and let's do this. And I was like, and I talked to other people in the program. They're like, 
she really does all this stuff. I mean, we t- we'd have step study meetings and we sort of talk about the step. None of us had ever done the steps. Uh, and none of us were abstinent. Surprise. And, um, you know, and she was in AA, so she's like, you know, I will, I can only, you know, pass on what I do, so none of my sponsees drink. And so that's got to be part of your abstinence. And, you know, I was going to the University of Virginia, which was rated one of the best party schools in the nation. Uh, you know, I figure they're taking the sugar and the food away from me. They're not taking the alcohol. I'm like, singleness of purpose. This is OA. So I just wouldn't tell her what I was drinking. That's simple. I didn't stay abstinent. I, I, I don't know why. Um, but um, as a kid, uh, I was the firstborn. Uh, when I was a year old, I weighed about 30 pounds, which is a lot for a kid. Uh, I don't think my mother knew how much to feed me. Um, but I was always hungry, apparently. And, um, and I was a big kid. Back in the 60s, the, the term was husky. I was a husky kid. I don't hear husky that much anymore. And he had husky jeans, which I wore. And the doctor, I remember from the age of five, he's like, you, you, you got to lose weight. You're fat. Look at your brother. He weighs 30 pounds. You, you guys should trade. And so from the youngest age, I was very aware that I was fat. I had to lose weight. I couldn't eat what the other kids were eating. I had to eat healthy. You know, that meant like white milk, not chocolate milk, you know, at lunch. And I really resented it. And yet um, I loved food. And um, everyone in my family was that way. Uh, I remember my, uh, it was 1976, I was in the sixth grade, and my father lost 50 pounds doing the amino acid diet, and you drink these liquids, different colored liquids, and that was it. And so I figured that was a good idea, so I, I started, I, I lost, I don't know, a couple pounds doing that. I, you know, I was in sixth grade. And, but I knew that everyone's, in my opinion, in my mind, everyone's born a body type, and you just get larger. And maybe you can slow it down for a little bit of time, but you're just going to get larger as you get older, and that's just the way it goes, because that's what happened to everybody in my family. So maybe I could slow it down. I certainly wasn't going to stop it. I certainly wasn't going to reverse it. I just was going to be fat. The question was, how fat? So uh, it made sense for me to do that type of diet. Then you had the Cambridge diet and all these other diets. Uh, You had the AIDS. If you remember, they had to sort of change the name of that. and, you know, all I grew up in a chaotic household, a lot of screaming and yelling, divorce, all, all, all that lovely stuff. And so food was a great comfort to me. Food was a focus. It was a friend. It worked. Um, I sought out friends whose parents had lots of food around and the mother would bake, you know, cookies and stuff. So I knew, you know, I picked my friends based upon what kind of food they had. Um, and I saw nothing wrong with that. That... That seemed very logical to me. And, um, you know, when my parents got divorced when I was, I was about five or six, and my mother really could not handle any of it. She'd come home, take pills, pass out, and that was really, and we were left to fend for ourselves. And so that's really what I remember as my childhood. Um, and um, basically, don't bring any problems to anyone else in the family because they really couldn't handle it. So I either had to solve it on my own or stuff it down or not talk about it or create a dual life. And all these coping mechanisms growing up. Um, 
I got into sports and as a teenager began to lose the weight just exercising and, um, and, and growing up. I, was, uh, I played tennis. Uh, my dad was a big tennis player, so every weekend it was tennis, tennis, tennis. Um, and, but I look like a football player playing tennis. I mean, people are like, you know, I go for the 12 and under tennis tournaments, and they're like, how old are you? They asked my birthday, because you're, you're a pretty big 12-year-old, and, and I was. I was a big kid, but I could move around the courts, and I was a good player. Um, I was, um, and it's funny, I became very obsessed with playing tennis and eating. And my son is 15 now. He surfs. I can see the same obsession at that age. Um, and I was good. I was really good. I didn't do well. I, I wasn't a good competitor because my head, when I get out there and play, I'd beat myself up on every single point. You know, I'd be like, idiot. You should have, you know, you shouldn't have hit that cross court. You should have done it this way. You shouldn't have done it that way. And I would beat myself up and I would beat myself. And I'd lose the match. And I remember playing, uh, starting out with this new tennis coach. He was teaching some people on the pro circuit, and I was 16. And um, I remember going to meet with him the first time, hitting, and he goes, okay, we're going to change a bunch of stuff. We're, you know, beforehand, you know, I want you to change. You know, you're too flat. We want to go topspin. Just change some stuff around and uh, really we rework everything. And he goes, all right, I want you to practice a lot. Come back next week, and we'll see how you do. Come back the next week. Start hitting around after about five minutes. He goes, um, it's good. Really good. How much did you practice? And I go, I didn't. <laughs> and he goes, you're hitting perfectly. Everything I gave you to do, you're hitting perfectly. He goes, you want to play pro? He goes, you know, I'm coaching Maria Schreiber and a bunch of other people, you know, in the 70s. He goes, you can play pro. You want to play, you know, Davis Cup, Davis Cup, college, college. What do you want to do? Because you can do it. But don't waste my time. And I thought about it, and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to play pro. He goes, okay, come back next week, we'll get started. I never went back. In fact, I put down the tennis racket for the next 20 years. Um, and part of that, I think, was that fear of success. The other part of it, quite honestly, was I really didn't like the prospect of hitting a ball over a net for eight hours a day. I mean, come on, that's really boring. I'm sorry. And what's interesting, as an aside, you don't see anyone in professional tennis have a child become a professional tennis player. Have it in boxing, have it in football, have it in baseball. You don't have it in tennis because it's not a wonderful sport to play professionally. I, I, I hadn't thought about it that much, but it was really about that fear of success. And I also knew, I, with my head, I wasn't going to go very far. I was defeating myself every time I got on the court. So stopped playing tennis. The weight started to come back on slowly. Went away to college. Got the freshman 20, 25. I mean, I was in heaven. Cafeteria food, no matter how bad it was, there was a lot of it and a lot of choice. And I could keep going back. And dessert. And no, and I loved it. And uh, in about two months, I couldn't fit into any of my clothes. I had one pair of jeans left. And... Um, I remember going back uh, for the holiday break, and it was Christmas Eve. I was out to dinner with my father, and 
I had to like starve for five days just so I could fit into something other than these jeans. And I was in a miserable mood. And my father says to me, he goes, you know what your problem is? And I go, what? I really wanted to know. He goes, you're a compulsive overeater. Everyone in the family is. I am. He goes, you need to go to OA. And I go, what's OA? And he talked about it, and I was thoroughly disinterested in that idea. And he goes, look, trust me, you've got the disease. So I was like, yeah, okay. And um, and that that was the first thing I heard about OA. It was 19, it was December 1982. And um, I decided I was going to lose the weight, went back to school. I, I go to eat with all the people in my dorm. And I'm like, I literally say, okay, can I have this? They're like, yeah. All right, can I have that? No. I mean, I had a group that basically told me what I could eat, what I couldn't eat. And then... I lost a ton of weight. And I found out later on, in a way, you know, having a sponsor and uh, a food plan and saying, can I have this? Can I not have this? You know, getting a second opinion. Uh, and, and basically, I turned over the management of my food to somebody else. And it, became, it was easy. The weight just flew off. Uh, and it was dramatic. But I had this idea. I guess I got, I don't know, I get... Uh, probably my top weight is less than I am today. You know, what is it they say? I, I, I wish um, I was as thin as I was when I obsessed about how overweight I was. You know, it's, uh, I think I got to maybe 180. But at 18, that's a pretty big size. So I figured if I got to 170, things would get better. My grades would get better. My dating life would get better. I'd be happier. I'd get to 170. Nothing had changed. So I figured, well, 160 is the number. So I get to 160. Nothing changed. 150. That's the number. So I kept losing weight. And I, you know, got dangerously thin. I got down to about 144 pounds. And working out all the time. And people are like, whoa, you you are too thin. And I thought, no, I'm not. Because my life isn't any better. I equated when I got thin... That's when things are going to change. That's when I'm going to be happy. That's when things are going to happen. And nothing happened. And I, I was really baffled. And at the time, I, during that year, I met this uh, girl and we began dating. Uh, another compulsive reader. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I don't know how that I picked someone like that, but I did. And... Um, I remember I went away, summer break came, and I'm like, okay, she was going to stay down there at school. I went back uh, uh, home, and I was going to come down in two or three weeks. It's always about, it was like a two-hour drive. And in that two weeks, she had gained like 20 pounds. And I, I couldn't believe it, because she had just lost a bunch of weight. Uh, and um, I remember going back home and just sort of fretting about, how am I going to fix this for her? Uh, and my father said, well, I don't think you can fix it, but you may want to check out OA. So she came up for the 4th of July weekend. I figured that was a good time to check things out. Uh, probably better if I had gone on my own, but I took her. It was a dreadful meeting. It was a newcomer's meeting. It's, it, it, it was bad. Uh, and I don't know why, but I went back on my own a week or two later to another meeting and um, in 1983 nobody looked like me 
I was thin, probably too thin, straight, 18. There's not that many people today would go back in 1983. So it wasn't like I was going to walk into a bunch of people, a room and identify at all. That was, it was a bunch of middle-aged housewives um, who were probably younger then than I am now. And But when they started talking about what was going on with them, what was going on in their mind when they were eating, and what they ate over, I was stunned. I didn't have the emotional vocabulary to put into words those feelings, but I immediately recognized it when I heard other people talking about it, and it really hit me. And that, for me, was the moment that I knew OA was the thing that was going to save me. I didn't expect I'd be here 30 years later, but that was a very, very powerful experience. And so I started on that road. And um, I didn't get abstinent until, um, for, I, I bounced around for about three years. Get a week, get six weeks. This was gray sheet. You were either abstinent or you weren't. Um, I couldn't get abstinent because uh, I kept getting drunk and ordering pizzas. <laughs> and a sponsor said, well, maybe if that happens, you should stop drinking. And I thought, no, no. Uh, yeah, I had my last drink, the, I, actually pill. I'd stopped drinking, but I, I began to freak out, and so I started taking pills. And I had my last pill literally the night before my last exam in college. So I was sober for graduation. And then I, you know, I had no job prospects. Um, so everyone was going to law school or something, going to work for IBM. So I said, I'm moving to Paris. And that sounded really great. Um, I'd never been to Paris, um, but it sounded like a good idea at the time. So after six months of talking about it, my graduation present was a one-way ticket. And um, I remember going over there and getting there and going, okay, what was I thinking? You know, I didn't really think they spoke French, you know, like all the time. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like Disneyland. There's what goes on for the tourists and then, you know behind the scenes and uh, but and I had a book for AA meetings I went to uh, the American church in Paris and there was an AA meeting going on and I was like you know three weeks sober and I was traveling around this guy in this youth hostel he was a stand up comedian I mean it was a nightmare and uh, so I go to this meeting and uh, at the end of the meeting um, they ask for announcements I raise my hand identify as an alcoholic you know like three weeks of sobriety from Charlottesville, Virginia and I need to talk to someone after the meeting or I'm going to drink and I'd never reached out like that before guy walks up to me his name was also Peter he goes I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia I'm over here writing a book for uh, the next year or so uh, and so why don't we here's my number give me a call let's talk I was like wow and this woman comes up to me uh, and she goes are you in OA? and I go uh, yeah how did you know? Goes, I don't know I just got this sense she goes we have an OA meeting in English starting in about 15 minutes downstairs why don't you come on down and 
that became two years of living in Paris, getting abstinent. Paris is an easy place to get abstinent, by the way. It is the easiest place. Not so e- as much easy now, because if you wanted chocolate or pastries, you had to walk into the chocolate or pastry store. If you didn't walk in there, you didn't get them. You know, they didn't sell them everywhere. And at 2 o'clock, if you had, had not had lunch, you're not getting lunch. They're like 11.30 to 2. That's it. And um, so it was very regulated. It was wonderful. And everything was in metric. So I had no concept of portion size. But people told me, okay, 19 grams of this. I had no idea. I was like, okay. And that became how I got abstinent. And I didn't even know the names of the food. Yeah, people would write down, okay, this is what you want to go get at the, uh, at the markets. And I, I turned it over to the program. That's what happened. And, um, you know, it, uh, it was a wonderful experience. I came back after two years because I'm not French. And I didn't see my life being over there. And um, continued in program and came to California. Um, you know, and I did a lot of work. The one thing I didn't do was I had a sponsor in, in Paris. And, um, and there weren't many people. And I remember dating someone in the program and who had the same sponsor, and that was a huge mistake. So I'm like, you take the sponsor. I'll find someone else. Uh, I didn't find someone else till 2005. I fired my sponsor in 1987. And I went all the way through program, D.C., Philadelphia, Los Angeles, coming to meetings on a weekly basis. I probably sponsored 100 people or more. But I, didn't, I, I couldn't find the right sponsor. And I was sponsoring myself. And ever so slowly, I drifted away from the program. Ever so slowly, I took back all of those foods. So that by about uh, 98, 99, I was not going to meetings. I was gaining weight. I couldn't figure out why. And I figured OA is not working. And just the year before, I picked up a 14-year chip. And I could never imagine OA not being in my life. And it was really about me not having that sponsor. And I drifted away, and, um, and I put on a ton of weight, and I became very depressed. And a lot of stuff happened in my life that was very, very difficult. And, you know, even in AA, I had drifted away, didn't have a sponsor. Um, and uh, in about 2002, a friend said, why don't you come to this AA meeting? I did. I ran into a guy that I met in the OA rooms. He became my AA sponsor. He left OA, too. He's like, oh, forget it. OA. The worst. Can't get absent. And I remember driving with him. We were going to a meeting. He was speaking in AA. And he goes, yeah, I recommitted to my abstinence. And this was in 2005. I've got three weeks of abstinence. I thought, wow. If he could do it, I could do it. And I came back. I came back to the kitchen sink Saturday morning. And I was in that meeting. I remember it. Um, and there was a guy named, there named Greg. Uh, and I had sponsored him 12, 15 years before in Philadelphia. I didn't even know the guy lived in L.A. And he walked up to me. And I said, okay, that, that's my sign. Because I remember my experience in Paris running into the guy from Charlottesville. I said, this is my sign. I'm supposed to be here. I really don't want to be in a way. I don't want to need this. But I need it. I had tried losing weight. Um, I had some heart issues. 
uh, the doctor scared me. He said, you're going to start running marathons and you're going to lose 50 pounds or you're going to have a heart attack and die. I was like, wow. He goes, but the strange thing is your, 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 your arteries are completely clean. For someone who has the cholesterol in your condition, I don't know how that happened. That's bizarre. And I thought in my mind, I know how it happened. It was all that years of being abstinent and being in OA and having a very, very clean food plan. And I thought, yeah, the only time I didn't have a problem eating was when I was in OA. My weight never fluctuated. It wasn't an issue. I didn't go back. That thought went away. I didn't grab it. And it was another couple of years trying to do it on my own. So I began running marathons, losing tons of weight. But then I hurt my leg. And I had to have surgery. And all the weight started coming back on. And I knew. I knew where this was going. And that's when I walked in uh, around Halloween weekend, uh, 2005. And at that meeting, I said, okay, I'm not doing this again. I walked up to a guy who I feared. He was so strict. And I'm like, I asked him to be my sponsor. I mean, his last binge was like a piece of toast. And I thought, wow, forget it. That's too hardcore for me. Um, you know, I wouldn't even write down a piece of toast. I mean, that's too insignificant, and that's his last binge. But I was like, I, I knew I, I, ha- I was out of ideas. And uh, I've been working with him since. He's not nearly as tough as I thought he was. I'm much tougher on myself. And, um, you know, the thing that today that I find is that I had to do a lot of inventories, a lot of step work, a lot of writing. Um, Just getting abstinent was the ticket the admission ticket. That's it. I always thought it was the end goal. That's the admission ticket. You know, I had a business partner that was driving me crazy. It was awful. And I'd write inventories, and I'd read them to my sponsor, and i pray to have the character defects removed. I'm like, okay, anger and resentment is going away, giving it up to God. <laughs> and I walk in the next day, and boom, it was right back. I was like, I'm going to write another inventory. You know, what I forgot to do was um, act as if the character defect had been removed because I prayed to have it removed. And then finally one day I said to my sponsor, I'm not writing any more 10-step inventories on my business partner. I'm terminating the partnership. But I had to do all of that to get to that point. Anyways, we're at the 10-minute mark. So I'm going to stop here and do the questions. Is that um, how it works? Okay. Yes. Did you go back to some tennis? No. No? Uh, I'll go out and hit sometimes, and I can hit like a really good country club player, and I might play for a couple weeks, and then something just goes off, and I lose interest, which is fine. Yes. Um, I was raised Catholic, um, and uh, the question is, uh, can I talk about my spiritual life? What it was like you know, when I came back into the program? How did that change what it's like today? Um, I was raised Catholic. Um, high school, I was sent to an all-boys Catholic military school. I think that had some effect on me and authority. Um, I, I Basically, it was irrelevant, the church and all its teachings. Um, 
I remember saying to my sponsor, and I come in and I and I read a lot of different literature and did a lot of exploring. I do some meditation, and I remember complaining about um, stuff one day. Okay, the car broke down. Oh, why does this always happen to me? You know, life sucks. And he goes, what's going on? I go, well, the car broke down again. It's going to be a $1,000 repair. And he goes, what kind of car do you drive? A little Porsche. He goes, no sympathy. None. He's like, none? He goes, none. I go, okay. And he goes, God is not out to get you. Life is not out to get you. Your conception of God is out to get you and I invite you to find a different God that's not going to punish you that's not going to make your car break down that anything bad that happens is because of this God and um, I came up with this you know what God should be um, but really what was interesting is in 2008 you know the, the financial crisis happened and I pray to have the fear of financial insecurity removed because I thought, yeah, I could lose my house. Things were very dire financially. And I talked to my sponsor. I go, I'm praying to have this fear of financial insecurity removed. It isn't going away. And I'm going to get foreclosed upon. I have no money in my account. No, 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 no. What do I do? He goes, stop praying to have financial insecurity removed. Well, but that's... What that... Then how's God going to know that, that that's the thing I need to have happen? And he goes, you're just continuing the self-obsession with this problem by keeping it up in the horizon, in the forefront. If you truly believe that your higher power is taking care of you, you've got to be all in. And he goes, so your house gets foreclosed upon. What's the worst that happens? You move out. What happens if you lose your job? What's the worst that happens? Are you going to be okay? Like, yeah. Was okay. So why don't you just pray, pray for God's will and to accept whatever that is? And it goes, if you stop praying for the financial fear, you know, financial insecurity to be removed, it will go away on its own. And sure enough, I stopped praying to have it removed, and after two weeks, it went away. And it's rare that I wake up at 3 in the morning with that fear. Because it's always financial at 3 in the morning for me. And what I discovered was something would happen. Something would come through. Maybe not the way I wanted it to, but I survived. It didn't kill me. I walked around life thinking that these insignificant events, whether it was my car breaking down or someone dying or financial problems it was going to do me in somehow it was going to be so horrendous and terrible I couldn't live with it and if I made the decision that I'm fine and it was a decision and that my higher power is taking care of me I was fine and I was being taken care of and so I didn't lose the house I did all sorts of negotiations it worked out but if I did that would have been fine too and so today what I pray for is to know what my higher power's will is for me, to be of service, and then to treat my life like a movie. Let's see what today's scene is going to be. 
It's going to be good. I don't know what it's going to be. But let's be excited and see what happens next. And if I become an interested observer of my own life, suddenly all that importance that I attach to everything goes away. I can go, oh, I just got fired. Okay. Hmm. Let's see what happens next. Knowing that it's all going to work out. I'm going to be fine. And that has been the greatest... It has given me the greatest sense of peace. I couldn't have done that without being abstinent and doing all that other step work to get to that point. And so it's really simple today. I can't control my compulsive overeating. I can't control my recovery. I can't control my life. So whatever happens is neither good nor bad. It happens. You know, some people move in next door. It's a really loud, obnoxious family that um, get on my nerves. Or they're really nice family that moved in next door. What I know is a family moved in next door. God is in charge of the nouns and verbs. I'm in charge of the adjectives. I can decide what my life is going to be. Even though I have no control over the events that take place. It's all how I look at it. Um, I learned I, I, I work in a uh, question is how do I deal with when people talk to me about the program it doesn't work or some other ideas that are really at complete odds to my own ideas and how do I deal with that without becoming too competitive competitive or maybe feeling that maybe they're right and I'm wrong because or they need to, put, to like shut them down like or shut them down and, and, and they you know for them to be in my universe and have an idea that's so opposed to what I'm doing, can I be safe with that? Does that the question? Yeah. yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Um, I work in a very competitive business, the financial industry. Um, there's always someone that's going to do what I do cheaper. And so someone will say, wow, your fees are really high. I go, yeah. It's a sales technique. <laughs> and you don't say anything. You agree with them? I go, yeah. It is. And they're just waiting for something else. And there is none. And people say, well, you know, the OA doesn't work. I go, well, okay. Or, you know, it's lame, it's this, it's that. I go, yeah. But for me, I was a fat kid, and now I'm normal weight. The odds there are less than 1%. Then I got fat again. And lost the weight as an adult and kept it off for several years. How do you explain that? You know, I go, it works for me. Um, I get it from my own wife. Oh, you're doing the food thing. You got to prepare. I, you know, I get everything sort of ready. I discovered it in a way. I need to be prepared. I need to have the food on hand that I need to have so I don't have to rely on anybody else. And I sort of have a little thing that I set up in the morning to make sure that that's all taken care of so I don't have to worry about it. And, you know, I get not a lot of support. But it's not her job to support me. It's not her problem. And if she has a problem with how I do it, yeah, there's the door. You know, it's her problem, not my problem. Uh, I'm very comfortable with that. And I think... Part of that is, the longer I'm here, the more I see there is no other solution for me. And so I'll agree with that person, and that's fine. It doesn't take away anything from my program.
Thank you.